You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. John chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with a that this illness doesn't lead to death, um, but instead it's meant for the glory of God. Jesus not says that. When he says that this illness doesn't lead to death, what he means is that it doesn't lead to eternal death. Physical death is scary for most of us if you think about it. I mean, there are some of us who have a death wish. Good. And the thing that all of us need to hear is that our souls are eternally safe. Uh, that's the thing that deep down inside we want to hear, that we are good and safe for all eternity. And that's the same kind of word that Mary needed to hear too. And she essentially heard that message from Jesus earlier after she came to him as a sinful woman. Came to him in the house of a Pharisee who had his nose stuck up in the air because how dare this woman touch Jesus' feet and kiss his feet. She anointed his feet with perfume. She kissed them. She dried them with her hair. Um, the reality of this story is that regardless of where you come from, regardless of what deep, dark sin you have um, committed, regardless of what deep, dark sin has buried you in the grave, Jesus has the power to transform your life, not just here momentarily on this physical earth, but for all of eternity. What we need to hear is this kind of word. It's, it's a kind of word that gives us eternal assurance from Jesus. It's the kind of word that we could hear if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. And so the question for all of us this morning is, can we hear those words of assurance? Are those words that ring deeply in your soul? My prayer is that you can. It's 5 through 16 with me now. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, but the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you, you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? One walks in the day. He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. For saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of this death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I'm there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, it's interesting to me as we uh, read these verses that John uh, tells us that because Jesus loved Mary and because he loved Martha, because he loved Lazarus, he actually stayed where he was at for two days longer. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance, right? He loves them. And Lazarus is about to die, yet Jesus 
delays going there immediately and he waits two more days. I think what Jesus did here is I think that he delayed the instant gratification of running right over to his friend's houses to heal Lazarus. And he did this because of his love for his friends. You see, waiting for Jesus to show up and do something in your life, this isn't a sign of his displeasure when you're waiting. It's not a sign of Jesus' inability to do the miraculous thing you've asked him to do just because you're waiting for it. It's not a sign that he doesn't hear our prayers. It may just simply be a sign that heaven is where we'll experience all of the things that our hearts long for. And it may just be a simple sign of his deep love for us in that he's teaching us in those moments to trust him in the midst of the unknown. It's one of the hardest things for all of us is to trust God in the midst of not knowing and having absolutely no control over what's happening. Similar to this morning when we have no power. When we're all locked in our homes already because of a pandemic raging its way across the world. We don't know what the next moment will bring. We have no control over it. Now, Jesus' disciples, uh, they can't believe that Jesus would go back to the town where the Jews had tried to stone him. It does seem kind of crazy. A town where somebody's going to try to stone me and I leave there. I probably don't want to go back there. But Jesus is quite a bit different than you and I. Jesus reminds his disciples that his work uh, needs to be done while it's still daytime. And in these verses, Jesus makes it clear that although Lazarus had died, he has designed this period of waiting for the good of his followers. Why? So that they may believe. Because I think most of us would say that we think that seeing is believing. Um, and it's no surprise here. You think about um, Thomas is very sour about the whole thing. Just let's go down there and die with Lazarus is his response. Very sarcastic. Um, Thomas has a history of struggling to believe. He's known as doubting Thomas. And I honestly, I can empathize with Thomas because I struggle to believe too. There are a lot of things in my life that I have asked for that I have not seen him come through on yet. And in those moments, at times, it's hard to believe. Jesus, are you really who you say you are? So this happens in my life, probably yours too, especially when it seems like our circumstances are maybe final as something like death. And especially when the waiting for something seems to drag on and on and on. But I would submit to you that I, in my experience of walking in relationship with Jesus, I believe that... Um, the sweet intimacy and closeness with Jesus is found in the waiting for the things that we desperately want as he shows up. Look at verses 17 through 27 with me. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Uh, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them, concerning their brother, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Love that little uh, detail about Mary. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you, can you hear the, the frustration maybe in uh, Martha's voice? Um, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. This uh, portion of text is uh, fascinating to me um, as I look at it, because in it, uh, we catch this glimpse of what it means to believe in Jesus. Uh, we, we don't believe in Jesus to make our lives here on this earth better than they were before. That's not the reason we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus because he is the essence of, of the resurrection unto eternal life. See, sometimes I think like Martha, we think that if Jesus would have just shown up earlier in our circumstances, then our present circumstances would be relieved. But the reality here in this text as we study who Jesus is and what he's doing is that Jesus is much more concerned with eternity. See, our lives on this earth are just a whisper. They're just a flicker of light for a moment uh, in regards to eternity. I mean, what is a hundred years compared to eternity if you live to a hundred years old? So the reality here is that Jesus is much more concerned with eternity. And the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus holds the power over Satan, sin, and death? That's the question that continues its drumbeat all throughout this gospel. Do you believe in the Jesus who holds the keys to eternity? Not just the keys to tomorrow or the next moment, but to eternity. Martha's answer is that she does believe. Look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you, can you feel the, the, the tension in her? Jesus, you didn't show up on time. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. It's two words, Jesus wept. And this isn't like just a picture of someone crying a little bit over spilled milk. This is a picture of a man grieving deeply at the loss of his friend, and at the pain of his other friends. So the Jews, verse 36 says, the Jews said, see how he loved him? Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So there's always a skeptic in the room. Always. 
honestly. Uh, I can be a skeptic too. I, I, I'm a, I, I, by nature, I'm, I'm a fairly skeptical person. Okay, I get a rebate offer in the mail. Just experienced this yesterday. Tell you that story another time. Get a rebate um, offer in the mail. I immediately begin to wonder what's in the fine print, right? Uh, sometimes uh, I, I, someone promises to be there when I need them the most. And, uh, and I wonder, are they really going to be there when the going gets tough? See, skepticism isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes skepticism actually keeps you safe. And in this case, the Jews are skeptical uh, because they wonder why Jesus didn't stop this momentary suffering and keep Lazarus from dying. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus wasn't behaving in some like emotionally callous or, or emotionally disconnected way. Uh, he was deeply moved by his own grief over Lazarus's death and his sister's pain. This is really helpful to know. Jesus isn't this far off God who doesn't intimately feel our pain and know our fear. Look, look at verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this is an interesting section of the text. You catch the flow of these verses with me, right? Jesus is emotionally moved by what's happening. Uh, his friend has died. His friend's body is in a tomb. It's got a large stone in front of that tomb. There's this nasty stench of death inside that grave. Jesus then asks the people to remove the stone. And he reminds Martha that she has made a statement of faith. She has already said that she trusts that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus prays. He asks his father to answer his prayer. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus does what? He obeys. It's fascinating. He wakes up from his death sleep comes out of the grave. And Jesus tells everyone around him to release Lazarus from the bonds of his grave clothes. This underscores the truth of Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation, no imprisonment, no death for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, scholars uh, and, and other writers and commentators have, have commented for, uh, for years, all, going all the way back to some of the earliest writings commented how this story about Lazarus and what happens in these moments when Jesus calls him out of that grave, that there is a connection between that and how Jesus saves us and how we come to believe in him. 
This is the reality of the salvation story. This is what happens when Jesus saves you. It's not like you were so lost in desiring to find the savior of your soul. It's more like you were an absolute rebel. You had rebelled so much against God and all that he says is right that you were running as fast as you could in the opposite direction, so much so that it's like you were in a grave, unable to change your life, unable to please God. Jesus finds you there, rotting, stinking in the grave of our sin. And then he calls out to us as his spirit gives us a brand new beating heart. And then our new hearts respond in faith and trust and belief. And we walk out of our graves. And then what happens after that is the same thing that happens in this picture. The body of Christ, the church, the family of God, empowered by the very same spirit that gave life to your dead heart, helps you and I. That church, that family helps you and I to loosen the shackles of our old grave clothing. With that in mind, pause and let this story and this definition of the story bring a whole new meaning to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Listen to these words, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Best two words in all of scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, stinking in a tomb like Lazarus, my insert. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And probably my favorite verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here's the thing. If you've believed in Jesus today, then you and I are just like Lazarus. We once were dead because of a deadly sin virus. We were rotting in the graves of our sin. We were unable to do anything to bring life back to our dead hearts. But God, in his rich mercy, in his rich love, in his rich grace, he called out to us. He gave us brand new hearts before we could even respond to his voice. So that we have no reason to boast. And then what happened? We ran out of the grave that we once were in and have been following Jesus ever since. If you've trusted in Christ, that's your story. That's my story. That's our story this morning. We share something with Jesus. Our graves are empty. 
Is that you today? Is the question. Do you believe? Can you look back on your life and can you see the empty grave that Jesus called you out of? Have you believed upon the name of Jesus for salvation? Have you trusted him for forgiveness? Have you asked him for eternal life? So with those questions in your mind, now turn your attention to chapter 20. Follow along with me. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 31. Begin in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, you have to remember what's happened in between here was Good Friday. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. I can't imagine that moment. I mean, you just watched your Savior murdered horrifically a couple days before. Now you come to the tomb to visit the grave and the tomb has been, the stone has been rolled away. Verse two tells us she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, You've taken the Lord out of the tomb. How scary would that be to to think that somebody would steal the body of your loved one? You've already been traumatized by this horrific murder. You've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter. I think it's kind of funny that John includes that piece. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Key word. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, how how cool is it here that that the same Mary who finds Jesus' empty grave is also the same Mary who witnessed her brother Lazarus walking out of his grave. See, here's the thing. Jesus specializes in empty graves. I'll say it again. Jesus specializes in empty graves. This is what he does. And it's precisely this kind of proof of an empty grave that helps us to believe. If there was no empty grave, then our faith is stupid. But the truth is, the grave was empty. Like Peter like John in this text, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, this proof of the empty grave is what reminds us of the assurance and the absolute hope. You think about Good Friday. Good Friday is where it seemed like all hope was lost. They thought the Messiah was here, and then he dies horribly on the cross. And you walk away from that horrible scene, and you go, what in the ever-living heck just happened? You have no hope. And then on Easter morning, you find the grave empty. That's the hope that we have in Christ, that this life is not all there is to our existence. If this life is all there is to our existence, that's a hopeless existence because it's going to go away. See, it's the proof of the resurrection. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Uh, Whom are you seeking? I find in this that Jesus has some weird kind of sense of humor. Supposing him to be the gardener, our text tells us. She asked him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, curse <sighs> Jesus speaks to her personally by name. He knows the number of the hairs on her head. He knows every detail of her life. And he speaks to her personally. He says, Mary, and she turns and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. I'm absolutely convinced. If I wasn't absolutely convinced of this, I'd have no right to preach. I'm absolutely convinced that what every one of us needs the most, whether we've walked with Jesus for years like these disciples, whether we've just begun to walk with Jesus a few moments ago, or whether we have yet to walk with Jesus, what every one of us need the most is an encounter with the risen Christ. See, the Jesus who is alive, the Jesus who has defeated death, the Jesus who has destroyed the power and the presence and the penalty of sin, the Jesus who has claimed victory over Satan. This is the Jesus that we all need a a, a real encounter with. We need an encounter with the risen Christ when we are facing the pain and the agony and the suffering and the waiting of this life. And that's where Mary is. She's weeping because she believes that Jesus' body has been stolen, but things are not as they seem. Jesus meets her in her pain. He meets her in her loneliness. He meets her in her fear, and she becomes the very first person to testify to the resurrection power of the Lord. Now, just think about this. In that culture then, for some reason, I don't know why, women were not on the same level as men, and yet God, in his unique uh, way of flipping things upside down, has Mary be the first person to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. That's powerful. It's powerful. The question that I have is, where do you need to encounter the Lord today? Let me ask this other question. What, what, What do you actually believe has more power than Jesus? What is it that causes you to shrivel back in fear? or to shrivel back in disbelief from Jesus. Maybe that's the place Jesus wants to meet you at this morning, is the thing that causes you to fear or to disbelieve. Look at verses 19 through 23. 
beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, which is a sign of giving them the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the reality of these verses here is that Jesus brings absolute supernatural peace to our momentary fears. Not that you're not going to feel fear, not that you're not going to be afraid at times, but Jesus is the only one that can bring true, supernatural, lasting peace to those fears. You see, because of his work at the cross, because of the truth that the, the tomb is empty, we have peace with our Father in heaven, which means this. It means that we are now then sent with a message of peace and forgiveness throughout the world. Here's the truth. Sin holds no power over, over those who have trusted in Christ. A Satan cannot touch those who have trusted in Jesus. The grave, death, it holds no threat whatsoever for those who have believed in Jesus. That's true peace. If you think about this, what does the world around us need the most? I mean, I, I've spent you know, 42 years on this earth. I imagine we've all spent whatever amount of time we've spent on this earth, having our hearts shaped by these false messages of peace. Get this truck, you'll have peace. Get this job, you'll have peace. Get this new spouse, you'll have peace. Get this new friend crowd, you'll have peace, etc., etc., etc. You can tag it whatever you want. At the end of the day, you and I both know that peace goes away. It doesn't last. It's momentary. The reality is that eternal peace, real, long-lasting peace that lasts longer than our lives on this earth, with Jesus, that's what we all long for deep down inside. That's the kind of hole that is inside of us. Hard to believe though, right? When you think about it, hard to believe. Go back to Thomas again. Doubting Thomas, the cynic, verse 24 to 25. So we read, now Thomas one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So all the disciples are testifying to what they've seen. Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Once again, I, I uh, really empathize with Thomas. He wanted proof. To Thomas, seeing is believing. He wants rock-solid proof that Jesus is alive. And honestly, uh, who can blame him, right? Like, If we were all there, I, I think we would say the same thing. We live in a world with all sorts of systems that don't come through on their promises. We need something or someone that we can actually trust. 
It's not that Jesus necessarily has a problem with Thomas's skepticism, I don't think. I mean, Jesus is just fine with proving his power to anyone who truly wants to know. The question that we all have to think about is this. It is, is seeing believing or is believing seeing? The reality about the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of believing in the scriptures is that believing is what allows you to see. Um, it's not that you are able to see, therefore you believe. Because prior to believing, you're dead. You can't see or you're blind. This goes back to the Amazing Grace song. Once was blind, but now I can see. Why can you see? Because you believed. How are you able to believe? An encounter with Jesus. That's how you're able to believe. Look at verses 26 to 29. Eight days later, mark that. Eight days later, meaning eight days after this conversation happened between Thomas and the rest of the disciples. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Great picture. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Fascinating. Would have loved to have been there. Just appears right there. Peace be with you, he says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Eight days later. Catch that? Eight days later. But once again, Jesus, he's not interested with immediate gratification. Jesus has no problem letting us wait it out for a bit if we're struggling to believe in him. Now, in my mind... Thankfully, I'm not God. It's my struggle. It's all of our struggles. We all want to be God. Ultimately, we want to be in control and be in charge. In my mind, I want folks to believe right now, right? Time is of the essence in my mind. But Jesus has his own timing. And his timing is much better than mine. Now maybe, maybe, think about this, maybe Thomas's cynicism just needed to be whittled down a little bit with all of the buzz going around about Jesus' empty grave so that he would be even more humbled when Jesus showed up in power and glory. Think about how humbling that would have been to have resisted everyone around you. All of those coming to you and saying, Jesus is alive. He's alive, believe in him, trust in him. You've resisted that for eight days. And then suddenly Jesus shows up in a very powerful way. It's very true that everyone who believes without seeing is blessed. But the bottom line for Thomas here is that he believed. And the question for you and for me is, have you believed? Have I believed? Have I witnessed the power of Jesus in my life? Has he really actually been there all along for you? And have you just been looking in the wrong places? See, my prayer today is that Jesus would show up and prove himself to you and that you would encounter the risen Christ because when you encounter the risen Christ, then you have no other choice than to believe. This is the essence of John's entire gospel. The final verses of our text have been identified by every scholar that I've read as the central text of John's entire gospel. Look at verses 30 through 31 with me. And if you've been with us for this whole series over the last four weeks, then you've heard this verse every week. Hear it now afresh. Now that you've 
studied and thought about the truth of these empty graves. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The truth of, of all of what we say, of all of what we've read here in John's gospel is that if you have believed in Christ today, then you have much to celebrate this morning. Why? Because if you've trusted in Christ as your savior, then you have believed in the one who holds the keys to eternity, not just circumstantial momentary things, but all of eternity. And in that, you and I can celebrate together according to Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Because if we are united with Jesus in a death like this, then we shall certainly be united with Jesus in a resurrection like this. We know that our, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Why would anyone knowingly leave themselves as slaves to sin when the door to the tomb and the door to the prison is open. You can walk out. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, then we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The two stories that we've studied today, they teach us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The stones have been rolled away. Death has been conquered. Satan has been defeated. And the presence and the power and the penalty of sin have been eradicated. Why? Because Jesus has risen. He's risen indeed. And the graves are empty. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.